John Pilger has impeccable credentials to address the topics we're going to get to this afternoon. He's been passionate about ethical campaigning journalism since he started his own newspaper at school here in Australia. He's won numerous awards for his work. He brings us not just words, but images in extraordinary documentaries, groundbreaking documentaries, exposing injustices, such as the aftermath of the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia and the thalidomide scandal in the UK. He also brought us an extraordinary exhibition, which I was delighted to show here in Australia, Reporting the World, profiling the work of the documentary photographers he's worked with on many of the front lines where he has witnessed the horrors of war firsthand. He also has a long history of working with indigenous groups in this country. He is a forthright and passionate defender of the powerless and their right to be heard, and a fearless and fearsome critic of the powerful. I can't think of anybody I'd rather be discussing dangerous ideas with. So welcome, John. Thank you, Lizanne. John, we recently previewed your extraordinary film Utopia at the MCA and we chose Australia Day to do it on, which was incredibly poignant. Talk to us a little bit about Utopia, not so much about the content, but about how it relates to our theme today of breaking the silence. Well, the, the greatest silence, of course, is around uh, indigenous people. And Utopia had one aim, and that was to... Um, well, I had two aims. The first aim was to break that silence uh, in, not among ordinary Australians perhaps, but certainly among the gatekeepers of Australia. Its second aim was to show support for indigenous people because everything in Utopia they knew about, but almost everything in Utopia, I would suggest that most Australians didn't know about, even though they, they said they did. And that's, that's certainly true today. I mean, since Utopia, um, it, it's inter interesting to see some of the issues that the film raised, such as the theft of children. We now have in this country a second stolen generation, where we have something like uh, uh, more children being removed by the authorities, by the so-called child protection authorities, than at any time during the 20th century, certainly more than before the Bringing Them Home report that revealed the original stolen generation. Now that ought to be something that touches everybody in this country, that moves everybody, that makes people want to change it and to stand up on the side of indigenous people but a silence envelops it. Envelops it for lots of reasons, which we'll no doubt talk about. The first is the media, which deals in stereotypes as far as indigenous people are concerned. Uh, it's to do with the political elite in, in Canberra, which, and this is the thing that shocks foreigners coming here, has a real animosity, almost a contempt, a contempt not just for indigenous issues, but it almost appears for indigenous people themselves. These, I've always felt that this was a kind of a current that we've never really tapped into in public debate in this country, 
just why the political elite has such disregard, disrespect for the first people in this country. Do you think the response to the film did generate more discussion? You talked a bit about the media and the way in which the film perhaps was portrayed in our media, and we know how one-dimensional our media perspectives are. How yeah. did the film actually get beyond those kind of immediate stereotypes that you've well, referred it's, to? Well, it's very interesting because we had a, we had a kind of, um, I suppose, a, um, a brainstorming before Utopia was released in Australia what we do about it. Well, we thought we had the media on the top of the list. What do we do about the media? Well, the media are either going to, are going to uh, uh, attack it or, or, or ignore it. So let's circumvent the media. And that, it was the most extraordinary exercise. Our first, there was our first showing, which was at the MCA. Uh, following that, the first indigenous premiere of the film had 4,000 people come to the block in Redfern. People, perhaps a third were indigenous people, two thirds were from multi-ethnic Australia. And throughout the country, um, we offered groups, uh, communities, uh, cinemas, the film as long as the admission was free, apart from a normal cinema distribution which happened later. And I would think that film has been shown several thousand times across Australia. Uh, certainly, in the opinion of uh, the distributor, more people have seen it than have seen any other documentary film. And one of the... What, so, the, the achievement, I suppose, was to bypass the gatekeepers, mm. bypass those who would declare mm. and, and, and disclaim it before it got to people. But what was so encouraging, and you and I were talking about this before we came in, was the popular response. Let's look at the numbers of people here today. One of the things that is always moving for me is that at the showing of films like that, at public meetings, at great events like this, people will turn out wanting to hear things, wanting to debate, wanting to discuss, but that's not the impression you get by looking at the surface in Australia, by looking at the media surface, the political surface. It's almost a supine surface, as if we're, as if we're beholden to so many outside pressures, forces all the time. And that applies, of course, in our domestic policy, our domestic economic policies and our foreign policies. So do you think there is a disconnect between what I would call the opinion formers, if that's what they like yeah. to think of themselves, those in positions of power, the politicians, the media, the church, the institutions, yeah. and, and, and Australians generally? You, you're not in despair about Australia as a country because the population, as no. you say, can, can be given the information and then will make, make a difference. Or do you think yes. we're sort of we're stuck in this rut with the politicians and the, and the media actually controlling and not allowing these discussions to take place? I, I think there is a disconnect. I mean, you do have great public meetings like this um, on, a, on, a, on a sunny Sunday. Um, and there's no doubt that 
as I've described, with the reaction to utopia. There is that sense that people want to be galvanized, they want to know, and they want to debate. Um, but the, it, it, we can't blame the political and media gatekeepers all the time. I think people are silent in Australia. They don't speak up. And they're beginning to speak up, perhaps, but at the moment when we're seeing a barrage of propaganda wanting to take us to war again, the coalition of the willing is off to Iraq again. Hooray! Uh, the, the imposition of of disgraceful government cuts on indigenous communities. $534 million are being cut from the indigenous budget, including $165 million from the indigenous health budget. And when you have, and the wonderful Australian small institutions like Hearing Australia, I happened to turn on the television the other night and see that Hearing Australia, which has been helping hearing uh, impaired deaf children since 1946 is to be outsourced. What wasn't mentioned in this is that right across Indigenous Australia, one of the things that affects children, apart from, say, trachoma, which causes blindness, is otitis media, and that causes deafness. So that you have in, in Robin, which is a town in Western Australia, right in the middle of the mining boom, something like 70% of the indigenous children are either deaf or partially deaf, and this one organization that is said to be able to help them is about to be privatized. That really is the kind of national disgrace that people should be speaking about. Mm. So yes, we can look to the top and say, bad media, um, uh, discredited, political establishment that's either on its way to ICAC or jail or <laughs> somewhere there in this state, or is the kind of ventriloquist dummy of outside forces as Abbott and his government are. We can, we can laugh at them and shrug them and say, isn't that embarrassing? But it's really about us. And why haven't we done something about it? And there are many ways to do something about it that only people here, I think, will know. Um, people right across the board will know. So I think the answer to your question is, it applies to both, applies to us and them. Do you think the silence is because people do feel helpless in the face of the enormity of some of the problems we're facing, whether it's the indigenous questions that you raised in Utopia or some of the wider questions we're facing now and the ways in which they're misinterpreted or, or as you've said, suggested, propagandized yeah. by government and the media? Well, yes, I think people do feel helpless, but they must understand that the, the goal is to make them feel helpless. The goal today is to disempower people, is to distract us into speaking only in a zeitgeist, if you like, about our interior lives. Almost everything uh, in the great consumer world, the media world, aims at the personal. Now the personal is political, that's fine. But when we're distracted into ourselves, into the interior all the time, directed towards our Facebook 
and towards our phones and all the other sources of distraction, we lose our greater strength, and that is collective power together, changing things. That's the only reason that we're sitting here in comfortable seats in the Opera House. Um, it wasn't handed down ever. It, it was struggled for. And we'd be here all day talking about the, uh, the history of, of real struggle for comfort and advancement in this country. So it, it, is, it, it's, 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 it is about, yes, it is about making us feel helpless, but in my view, we have no right to feel helpless. We live, most of us, certainly the people here, in a rich country. And there are many of sources for finding out, for um, galvanizing, for uh, seeking solidarity and whatever we, we want to do, that people in so-called underdeveloped countries, poor countries, which have to fight for their lives almost every day, or people in indigenous Australia who have to do that almost every day, we have, we have no right to feel helpless. We have every obligation on us to help. John, you... Yeah. You raised the issue of propaganda, and you as a journalist have campaigned your entire life against propaganda and the way in which conflict, wars, issues are, um, are misrepresented at a very basic level without being, you know, mentioning other malevolent uh, forces. Do you think that's happening here? Do you think that you've mentioned the war, the, the possible entering into another war? Um, do you think that's happening here with the propaganda we're seeing coming out of the Middle East? We, we, we are um, subjected to more intense and insidious but intense propaganda than I can remember on all fronts. We have, we're being called to take part in another act of violence in the Middle East. A Middle East where I read the other day that the Americans can't even make up their mind who they're bombing in Syria. So what they're going to do is on odd days bomb one side and on evens bomb the other. And I'm not joking. That's the kind of... And we're being called to against these, this, this latest demonology and no one, no one by any means um, uh, minimizes the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, this, I, I dare to say threat, because I don't believe this country is threatened one bit, nor do I believe the United States is threatened. I think there is a disruption in the Middle East that has been caused largely by us. The, the modern jihadism, which has produced this horrific tribal group in uh, Islamic State uh, with its horrific imagery, what modern jihadism was invented in Afghanistan in the 1980s as a device to get rid of the Soviet Union from Afghanistan 
and as a way of preventing a secular Arab world. It was a cynical imperial invention from all the intelligence groups from the British MI5 right through to this country. So much of the mayhem we see in the Middle East, we are responsible for. We should never forget that. If, if only as a starting point to begin to analyze it and contextualize it and understand it, but certainly not to follow some, as I said, ventriloquist dummy like Abbott into bombing another war, <laughs> uh, another country. <laughs> So let's talk a bit about Australia on the world stage, as, as, if you've, as you've raised it, that wonderful phrase. Um, you, you feel, obviously, that, w that Australia still very much is, is kowtowing to the UK and the US in its policies. But do you think that Australians generally are in favour of this kind of thing? Or do you think, again, we've got this disconnect? How can we stand up and be different or stand up and, and, and break the silence of, of subservience, which is, I think, what you're getting at? You know, Lizanne, that's probably, you've put your finger on it, that breaking the silence of a subservience. I would call it a civility. It's a kind of devotion to a, an obsequious status quo. We, we are a derivative society and our terrible irony is that the only thing that's unique about this country are the indigenous people whom we push aside. We, are, we have become more and more derivative in that almost every voice that we speak with in the outside world is not our voice. It's from the United States. That has been true for a very long time and I can only be thankful to the Abbott and Bishop government that at least it's so obvious now. <laughs> it is, and, but, but to, Australia is not independent, it's not intellectually independent. In many ways, it's not even culturally independent. But why not? I think that's a question all of us have to ask ourselves. Why isn't? Why isn't it? Why, um, wh why is our political voice coming from across the, uh, the, the, the Pacific. Why do, we, why do I pick up a news, two newspapers, the front pages of both Sydney newspapers on Thursday? Uh, one of them had enemy at the gates and the other had an enemy comes home. The kind of crude scare stories that I think I grew up with during the McCarthyite period. Why, after all these years, are we still swallowing this nonsense? It's, it's something that is manufactured elsewhere and regurgitated here by our political elite. Um, for example, the idea that, that Tony Abbott should stand up, he's laughingly called a world leader by most of the press, that uh, he should stand up and virtually blame the Russians for shooting down a Malaysian airline when there isn't a shred of evidence of that. In fact, there's a lot of evidence of something very, very different. You know, that kind of 
That, that kind of propaganda that comes through our media day after day is something that we should oppose because it affects how our, how our country is perceived right across the world and worse than that, the kind of decisions that our politicians are allowed to make on our behalf. Do you think the fact that we have social media now, we're not reliant on the newspapers, um, they're all pretty much going downhill in terms of selling newspapers and people can actually connect in different ways. We can hear the voices of the different people operating in the Middle East directly. We can see images on Twitter, we can see all sorts of other ways in which people can connect. Do you think that's a force for a good, that's something that we can galvanise to actually be, have direct, develop oppositional voices? Yes, I do, but I don't think it is... I don't think social media is the, the great saviour of freedom of speech that it's made out to be. I think it is quite isolating. And I mentioned earlier about how so much of our, our debate is, is a distraction. It's about our interior selves. I think social media encourages that a great deal. But it's a contradiction, isn't it? Because at the same time, it is a way of connecting with other people and it allows us to connect with people in other countries and to find out. I mean, in the ill-fated Arab Spring, social media in a poor benighted country like Egypt played, played a very constructive role in the same way it did in Tunisia. I think what has come out of social media the most, the most hopeful development, certainly in my lifetime as a journalist, is the appearance of great whistleblowers. Whistleblowers have always been the source of the best information, the most revealing information, the most subversive information, and the best journalism. That's been my experience as a journalist. We now have whistleblowers who, on an epic, heroic scale, such as Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange and others, have produced uh, a truth that tells us about the lies that our governments tell behind our backs. And that, that's an incredibly important development. Now that has come, I suppose, out of a form of social media. It's certainly use the technology that we use every day. It also tells us how our own privacy, how these days that we're being, uh, if not monitored, but we're certainly being spied upon, uh, perhaps as never before. But putting, putting that side for a second, I think that the, the revelations of these great whistleblowers and many others whose names we don't know are probably presents a way to a certain truth that will have a political force about it. I'm absolutely convinced by that. I thought that the, the arrival of WikiLeaks, journalistically, was one of the most exciting things I'd known. So that's one very interesting way to consider how we can break the silence, which is by using these new channels of communication yes. to cut through the 
propaganda that we see around us in the, in the, in the more mainstream press, I imagine. Do you think there are other ways? I'm wondering whether the arts should be another vehicle for breaking the silence. Do yes. you think that could happen? <laughs> should it happen? Is it happening? Well, it is happening at the MCA. Oh, thank right? you, John, but that was not a leading <laughs> question. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it should. But what's, Lizanne, what's the danger? Um, it seems to me that the arts increasingly have to rely on sponsorship. And sponsors come from certain vested interests that are part of the problem. So, how do you balance that? Can the arts be, ever be truly independent and therefore bite the hands that no. feeds them, I guess, is the, answer, <laughs> is the question. Um, Wesley Enoch recently wrote a, a fantastic article about the lack of what he sees as the lack of cultural leadership in this country and that the cultural leaders are not standing up and, and allowing for the flowering of, of, of an artistic expression that would be oppositional, genuinely oppositional, or even adopting positions of, of whatever complexion that might be. Mm. And I think it's something a lot of people have been thinking about. Mm. Well, I, I think that, you know, we're all... Edward Said one, wrote a wonderful book called Cultural, Culture and Imperialism. And politics and culture are one. And he, he described... that He felt the great danger of the digital age was that we were all being wired and that culturally we were, we were being wired in terms of our information, where we were being wired. And by wired, he meant that, um, that, that other voices, because of their power, because of their patronage, because of their, their ownership of media, their control of media, such as in this country where 70% of the capital city press is owned by Rupert Murdoch, and so much of the digital information life is controlled by virtually a duopoly. He felt that that wiring was the equivalent, as he put it, of the power of the great navies of the, of the 19th century, that you didn't have to send gunboats anymore. You could do it via the media, or you could do it culturally. You could direct people towards thinking in a certain way without them believing that they were conforming. It goes back, I think, it's, it goes back to the, the power of public relations. The inventor of public relations, Edward Bernays, called it the invisible government. And public relations, like sponsorship perhaps, runs in an insidious river almost through everything that we read, see, and watch. It's not just about product placement, something as crude as that. It's about directing us towards a very narrow view of the world, always directing us, and I go, again, I say that, back into us, directing us towards identity politics. Identity politics are fine, but when they exclude the geopolitics of the world, when they exclude what else is happening in the world, then you can, it's a sure bet that you're being manipulated. This is not, this is not anything to do with saying, be careful, there are conspiracies, and it's all about paranoia. 
It's not like that. But it is an insidious force that runs through modern societies and a very political one. Do you think there's a lack of, that this has led to a lack of community engagement or, or collective action, I guess, I'm getting at, whether it's unions, the demise of the union movement, or people yeah. really feeling that they can galvanise around a particular issue? Yes. Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as community. Are we still yes. in that position? And is it, do you think it's more intense here than it is in the UK? You live between the two yeah. countries. No, I, I think it's... I think it's I think it is more intense here because there are fewer outlets for dissent. It, it, it's such a paradox. You know, we live in, it appears, an open society, and yet dissent, culturally and political, is minimal compared with our conformity with the prevailing wisdoms. I mean, if you look across film and theatre, uh, yes, here and there, but where is the satire? Here and there, not much, hardly anything at all. I, look, I pick up a newspaper, uh, a Murdoch newspaper, and ask, how do they feel they can get away with this propaganda? They must be very, very confident and I think they're confident because the avenues of dissent are so few. Now that seems extraordinary in such a free society with all sources of information open to us via the internet. But most people's information on a daily basis still comes from free-to-air television. And most of the news, for example, on free-to-air television in my view, is unwatchable. Because it is, has an agenda, it is propaganda, it is censorship by omission. So in other words, I think what we have to do is start with our kids in school and start teaching them about this. As far as journalists go, we should be teaching them in media colleges uh, we should be telling them always to be sceptical about power, not about people. There are, there, is, there are many ways of addressing this, but we have to do something about a situation that, going back to your original question about Indigenous Australia, when we, we allow the this unique people who are the owners of our country to live in the way they live, we deny them self-determination. We deny them even their own media. You know, one of the best Aboriginal newspapers, Tracker, was closed down not all that long ago under indirect, indirect pressure from the New South Wales government. They didn't tell them to close it down. And, what, and the story that apparently broke the back of this was that um, uh, a very good analysis showing that most indigenous people had not voted for Tony Abbott. And this excellent magazine that was full of dissent, full of different views, uh, was closed down. Now, it's, 
it's perhaps very few of you know about that. But for indigenous people across this state, it mattered a lot. So it's, you use the word connecting, Lizanne. I think it's about time we connected in Australia with so many things. The truth of our past, the fact that we have a national war memorial that still denies the only war in which Australians defended this country against an invasion. I went to the shop in the National War Memorial and asked for a book on the frontier wars and the woman behind the counter said, what's that? So at the same time, we have a prime minister wanting to go off and, uh, and join the Americans in dropping bombs on a country in which we took part in a virtual holocaust. A minimum of 700,000 men, women and children were killed in Iraq as a result of the invasion led by Blair, Bush and backed by John Howard. And he's, he's saying do it again. So there's two wars, one from our past that matters, that we know about it, and one that we're being asked to join again that is atrocious. Now, in this modern society, we have to can make those connections. So to break the silence? <laughs> well, just doing that would, would, would break the silence. It's not being, it's, you know, there's a critical public intelligence, mm. and it's what we were talking about. Um, people, so many people get it. They're not quite sure what to do about it. It's a sort of subterranean intelligence that the media has no... People are usually well ahead of the media, well ahead. They're usually well ahead of politicians. But what do they do about it? Well, public meetings, understanding, um, understanding that some issues require direct action. It shouldn't just be left to a few brave people to go and turn up and face um, institutions that are taking us to war or are, are uh, uh, imposing all kinds of privations on, on refugees, on indigenous people. The rest of us should join them that nothing politicians fear more than the wrath of people. I know that sounds very old-fashioned, but it's true. Nothing they fear more than that, and any kind of collective action. I mean, one example on Australia Day, so-called, 2012, there was a, a fracas in, in Canberra, and... Uh, um, uh, Julia Gillard lost a shoe and uh, uh, Tony Abbott, um, I don't know what he did, wandered behind her or something. <laughs> um, but the whole thing was a, sort of a nonsense. Their, their, their security people had a, a panic. No one threatened them. But I thought what was interesting about that was when I was making Utopia, I looked at all the, what a job, I looked at all the, the, the media coverage from Channel 10, 7, 9, ABC, right across. 
And they, were, they, were, they went from being apoplectic that how dare, how dare these blackfellas do what they've done? How dare they frighten and disturb our, our tranquil, wonderful political life in Canberra? And for almost a split second, right across the media, you caught sight of um, a reaction of what people when they, and this was by accident, I have to say, in Canberra, a lot of things that weren't planned, marches, none of that, but it, it, it was so threatening to those who represent the vested interests in this country of status quo, and that is the media. Um, it was so frightening to them that uh, they could barely contain themselves. So the answer is, do something. Hmm. Fair go Australia? Is there one? Is there, Do sorry? we give people a fair go in Australia? Is there any chance for any notions of equality or... We have a proud history of it, but we seem to have lost it somewhere. Well, we do have a proud history. We have a, you know, we, have the mo we had the most equitable spread of income in the world, personal income in the world in 1968. So we almost achieved fair go. And that, that equity, if you like, or near equity, has since been wrenched apart so that we probably have an inequity now greater than it's ever been. Where a government that brings down a budget that was a class budget, there's no question about that. It was a class budget. It was giving to those at the top. It was exactly what Thatcher did when she came to power in 1980 in Britain. She, and what I have to say, the, the Keating Hawke government did around the same time was to redistribute wealth from the bottom to the top. And now we have Abbott, a truly, his government, a truly extreme government, uh, almost finishing the job, as it were, and, and, and putting paid to that real sense of fair go that, as you describe it, Lizanne, a proud history of a country, the first pensions, the first child endowment, the, the secret ballot, uh, uh, all, those, all those proud... Um, all those proud community achievements, uh, second country in the world to give the vote to women and many others, happened here in Australia. And I suppose what this discussion about is, is memory. You know, are those achievements celebrated in our schools? Do children know about them? Because if they know about them, they must be inspired. Do they, do they know that during the First World War it was largely a, a women's movement that put paid to conscription? Here we are heading towards this, this uh, uh, festival of Anzac next year. $300 million the government is investing in propaganda through the schools and media in order to promote ANZAC as a way of promoting its own militarism, basically. And yet, the other truths of ANZAC, 
of, uh, of the First World War, such as the, 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 the women's movement that spearheaded the popular movement that stopped conscription of this country. It's one of the proudest movements. How much do our kids know about that? You know, when Julia Gillard was being celebrated as a feminist, here was, here was somebody who sent soldiers, including women, off to be killed in Afghanistan, or was saying no to Aboriginal women uh, who uh, were asking for the most basic services in their, in their communities. Um, I, it's, it's almost as if we have to separate the, this, the, the modern sense of the veneration of identity from what actually is politically decent and progressive. And we have so many examples in our country's history. You know, the, 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 the miners of Broken Hill in the 1920s won a 35-hour week well ahead of the rest of the world. We hardly hear anything of that now. And okay, they don't exist, perhaps, in the form that they exist anymore. As you mentioned, Lizanne, the, the trade unions and the labor movement are all different. But these are, the, the, these were enormous achievements, political, human, social achievements by ordinary Australians, and they should be celebrated. So I suppose what I'm saying is memory is what we have to reclaim. And we have to see that our children reclaim it, our trainee journalists reclaim it, our lawyers reclaim it. That's a great call to action. And on that point, I'm going to open up to the floor. So I think there's someone heading for microphone one. Hi there. Um, my question is, do you think that the West should ever get involved in wars overseas, ever? Because it feels, despite our misadventures in the 2003 Iraq war, and despite the problems that we've caused that contribute to that particular situation now, it feels like you're saying we should just let ISIS kill whoever they want to kill and commit genocide however they wish to. Um, despite the causes that we may have contributed, don't we still have a responsibility, a moral responsibility, to help the people who are being beheaded and um, killed and crucified on the streets of Syria and Iraq right now? Hmm. It's interesting about this hideous beheading, isn't it? How much do you know about the beheading of Aboriginal people in the early days of this country? So, could I? So, therefore, just, I'm not defending the horrific things that the no, West me, has let done. Me, let no, me, no, no, answer, let me answer, let me answer the rest I'm, of your. Let me answer the rest of your question. You you refer to a misadventure in Iraq. A, Did a you hear me? Seven hundred thousand people lost their lives, men, women, and children. And you call that a misadventure? I was against the war Nothing. They should do nothing. <laughs> I was against. So you should. It's okay. So you should let them die. Let them all die. Yeah, you're very selective. 
Next one. Question from over here. Uh, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, you touched on lots of issues there. How do you prevent yourself getting overwhelmed? And how do you, how do you prevent yourself becoming overwhelmed? And how do you um, retain hope? Um. <laughs> uh, I don't. Uh, look, um, I, um, I've been um, doing what I've been doing for some time, and at times it has been overwhelming. Yes. I can think of times in particular situations when I've felt overwhelmed. Uh, but I can't afford, and neither of us who have the privilege of, and I have the privilege of going into people's lives and reporting their lives and trying to make sense of their lives, that's a privilege. And I feel I have no right to stay overwhelmed, but you're right, I have been overwhelmed. And um, I'm not sure about hope. Hope's a, hope's a lousy word. <laughs> And we can all sit around like Barack Obama saying, hope, hope, hope. But where does it get us? <laughs> Nowhere. Okay. Question from there. Um, thank you. I found that very inspiring. Um, just one question. One thing, you talked about insidious forces, um, sinister forces, and you've spoken quite a lot about politics and media, but um, are you letting off the multilateral corporations and rampant capitalism as a piece of the, those sinister forces? I hope not. I'm I sorry if I gave that impression. <laughs> 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 I didn't mean to, be assured. <laughs> um, look, we have one of the most extreme capitalist systems now working in the world. It goes under the really awful jargon term of neoliberalism. And it's the worship of money, basically, not of manufacturing, not of products, not of things, but is, it's a, a casino. Um, it's casino politics. It's meant to divide people. And what has happened in all these countries that have been attacked by us, and Iraq is probably the best example, is that we've left huge divisions. And dividing people uh, is, 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 is really a natural, a natural aim of extreme capitalism such as neoliberalism. We have a, in fact, I always try and describe it as these days we have, we have socialism actually, we have socialism for the rich. <laughs> uh, they get <laughs> tax breaks, lots of welfare, uh, huge uh, remuneration, um, all the holidays they want, lots of perks, massive socialism, sort of socialism. And extreme capitalism is reserved for the rest. And even more extreme capitalism is reserved for those at the bottom. And this capitalism is upheld by entities known as corporations. When corporations were first invented in the 18th and 19th centuries, they were hated by people. People in those days who didn't have social media saw them immediately, ordinary people, for what they were. But they were 
simply great elite vested interests in which certain interests came together to promote um, their own wealth, their own, uh, their, 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 own, their own influence. These corporations have developed now over the years uh, into great dictatorships. No greater dictatorship than, let's say, IBM, Apple, all these vast companies, Shell, uh, there's no democracy within them. They have uh, 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 apparently shareholders, although if they have, like Qantas, uh, I should only mention Qantas in this context, where they do have lots of small shareholders, they're ignored. So in other words, the point I'm making that we, our economic life is largely ruled by great dictatorial organizations. Now, who's wagging the dog? Are they wagging the political dog or is it the other way around? I think they take it in turns. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it, I'm quite encouraged by the fact that the discussion moved into, or was focused on the media in a, a large proportion of it, and I think it's taken a long time to get large um, public discussions moving in that direction. Um, I noticed recently free speech has been, has come up um, in, in our government uh, trying to do something with that, you know, to try and further their interests there. It's a, it's, a, it's a touchy area. Most Australians are very um, reluctant to get into that, uh, you know, dealing with the press. Uh, what, how do we do that? But getting traction on Aboriginal affairs or climate change or anything, really, we're going to have to try and question. get the media industry... <laughs> What's the question? Sorry. The question, sorry. OK. Um, we do need to look at the existing free speech laws, I think, and look at the power of the press. Right. Do we not? To, do we, if we're do going we to get to? traction. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> no, okay. No, look, he's, good points are being made uh, there. Uh, I think you're right, actually. I think many Australians are touchy about not just the press, but the whole media. It has a kind of exotic, almost exotic place. They don't believe it, but it has an exotic place, as if it's untouchable. And it really, when I describe corporations uh, as dictatorships, well, then so is the media. Uh, no greater dictatorship than uh, News Limited or News Corporation or whatever it calls itself around the world. Um, and if Australians can get over their touchiness, then I would suggest that they, and they feel very strongly about getting a diversity of opinion, a diversity of news, and some truth from their media, then they should take direct action. Uh, and that's beginning to happen at long last in the UK, where the BBC finds itself under siege from large numbers of people who want to know why it is reporting the Middle East in a certain way. Now, I would suggest the same direct action should be taken against 
media organizations in this country. You'd be surprised how frightened they'll get. <laughs> Another question from this side? Yes. Um, you tell us to be critical of power. I am critical of your argument, and I would please um, call on you as a journalist, as an honest person, to answer the first question, which was related. Thank you. Which was related to whether or not we have a responsibility, the people of Australia and their government, a, a moral responsibility to ensure that everybody gets a fair go, whether it is the Indigenous people or elsewhere. You just diverted that first question with another question, which is what political well, people the always yes. do. Yes. I find that interesting that you say yes to that answer because it seems from your argument that you would be very opposed to that. What? I'm sorry if you... Were, were you referring to the first question about whether we should intervene in, with, to deal yes, with ISIS? Yes, that's right. It's the question oh, around whether we should deal with ISIS. about having a fair go. It's about, yeah, yes, well, these ideas are related in some ways, are they not? Uh, I, think that, I think that our government should be... Uh, if, it, if it does have any kind of influence, should be working on uh, an international level and a United Nations level to bring the most instant and immediate humanitarian assistance to people in many countries. This government and these governments in Australia, as I know during all the years that it refused to bring assistance, not only to the East Timorese, um, and instead supported the, those who were, were imposing a genocidal regime on the East Timorese, uh, the first thing that they should do is stop supporting the greatest source of violence in the Middle East. That's number one. <laughs> Speaking just a minute, speaking independently, speaking independently of those sources. And those sources should be well known. The, the greatest source of violence, the greatest victims of violence in the Middle East since the so-called war on terror have been Muslim people. And everything that the Abbott government is now saying about its attack on Iraq and Syria and, the, and the, the mayhem which it is about to join has a subtext. It's about Muslims. There's no question about that. It is about the Muslim world. The Muslim world is seen as a direct threat to the West, its interests, its hegemony, and its dominance. And the answer to your question is, the first thing it should do is to separate itself from this source of violence. The violence brought by the Islamic State or ISIS is tiny, tiny compared with the violence that we in the West have brought to the Middle East. And once we recognize that, and if you, if you feel the moral force within you, then join that movement to get your government away from the source of violence, because Australia, Australia, with its uh, with its with its 
its troops in, in Afghanistan, its special operations in Iraq, and in all the other countries, such as Africa, uh, is the handmaiden of what Martin Luther King described as the greatest force of violence in the world. So disengage from that, and then we have the power. Then we do have a moral voice. We do can come up with all kinds of imaginative ways of, in a humanitarian sense, helping people, helping people properly throughout the world. But while we're on the coattails of this, of this, this violent force, we're never going to do it, I can assure you. We've got, you have one very quick question. Very quick. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize. Somebody up there, one last quick question. Thank you for that inspiring rallying call. I think it was much needed for many of us here. My question is this. Do you think that journalistic integrity is becoming an increasingly rare commodity? If so, why is, it, why is this the case? <laughs> Look, there is, there is plenty of journalistic integrity. I have a lot to do with young journalists. Uh, I'm attached uh, to a particular journalism um, teaching uh, university. Uh, I deal with young journalists in this country and other countries. Uh, all their, their work, the majority of their work, exudes integrity. And to use that old-fashioned term, idealism. There's nothing wrong with them. What is wrong is a system that sucks them in and, if you like, seduces some, subverts other, uh, forces others out altogether. And that includes, I have to say, the teaching of journalists. Too many journalism schools are merely uh, fodder factories. And the idea that the journalist is independent an agent of people, not of power, that whole notion is not encouraged. Although my experience with young people is that's the way they see themselves. So you have plenty of young people going into the media with a real sense of integrity, and with all that in youthful enthusiasm, uh, at worst to have it crushed out of them. So it is a system. And Sadly, we're out of time, John. Otherwise, they'll cut time. us down. Look, please join me in thanking John Pilger. <laughs>